3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to Elders past and present and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning, Wednesday breakfast listeners, 15th of February 2023. Hope everyone is well this morning. I've got uh, Claudia, myself, and Sunera. Hi, good morning. Studio. It's very chilly today. Bizarre, actually. It's going to be a warm day, but uh, at the moment it's a little on the cool side. Getting ready for winter already. <laughs> well, I think we'll have a few hot days first, but um, the mornings are definitely getting a little darker. And, yeah, they've been a bit cooler as well. Yeah. So today's a special program. It's our sus- subscriber drive day. So to all our listeners out there who are 3CR subscribers, we want to thank you for being part of our community and supporting what we do. We're going to be talking about uh, the value of subscribing and the importance of keeping independent media like 3CR Breakfast on air. And for those people who like to listen to the show who might not be subscribers, um, this might be an opportunity to reflect on what you get out of listening, what you'd like to keep listening to, and yeah, to think about joining the subscriber community. Yep, definitely. Um, we don't rely on any um, other funding or any extra funding. We are very much independent, volunteer-based, and um, the only reason we are up here speaking now is because we rely on our subscribers. So if you really care about independent uh, media, especially alternative media that doesn't get, um, that, you know, isn't on air in mainstream media, please consider subscribing if you want to keep this up. Absolutely. Um, there are two ways to subscribe. Uh, you can hop online at www.3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Uh, you can also call us at the station if the online environment's not your cup of tea. Call us on 94198377 and you can subscribe over the phone. So, what have we got on today, Sonera? We've got some great conversations and ones that actually touch on the way the media represents um, communities. So, 
that's actually quite uh, timely given we're going to be discussing uh, and promoting independent media today. So the first conversation we're going to hear is uh, with Catherine Simmons. She works for Act in Connection and she is the artistic director of a film called Forget the Stereotypes, which is a collection of rich personal stories of international students showing at Melbourne's Immigration Museum. So Grace spoke to Catherine during the week and we're going to kick off the show with that. And then we're going to hear from Evan Wallace, who I spoke to yesterday. Evan's actually a former 3CR breakfaster himself. He now works for the ABC in Alice Springs. And I spoke to him about uh, the recent swathe of media reporting about Alice Springs and the challenges for journalists wanting to tell the long, deep story about complex uh, issues. And then to wrap up the show, we're going to be speaking with Mick Cummins, who won the prize for Best Unpublished Manuscript in the Victorian Premier's Literature Prize. Last week we spoke with Jessica Au about uh, Cold Enough for Snow, which won the Fiction Prize and the Overall Prize. So it'll be really interesting to speak to Mick about... um, the unpublished manuscript, the one that hasn't yet reached the bookstore and is all quite top secret, so we've only been able to read a little bit of it. It's called One Divine Night, um, described as a gritty, compelling work exploring homelessness, independence and the ties that bind on the streets of Melbourne. So, yeah, excited to speak to him a bit later on. So, shall we hop into uh, our first segment? Yep, no worries. We'll just be back um, with uh, our first segment just after a few CSAs. I'm Mauro Durante from Canzoniere Grecanico Salentino. This is 3CR 855 on your IM dial. Please subscribe. The community is important. The spirit of community is the most important thing. So, subscribe. Hi, everyone. It's Grace. Stereotypes are everywhere. How we act, how English should be spoken, what we wear is deemed weird or cool. And many international students face those cultural barriers here in Australia. The film Forget the Stereotype wants you to forget about that pigeonhole mindset. I spoke with artistic director Catherine Simmons of Acting Connection, one of the creatives of a film, which was in collaboration with Immigration Museum Victoria. We spoke about the process to making this film and what the message is about. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Hello, Grace. Hi. So just letting you know, I'm actually also an international student myself. Maybe our listeners will know that I'm also actually an international student. And this topic that we're going to be talking about is something I can relate a lot to. So I really wanted to talk to you about uh, your the film, Forget the Stereotype. Can you roughly tell our listeners what the film is about? Well, really, it's based on a, actually, um, it, it originated on a, a theatre project I did with international students, which gathered international students together 
and um, I asked them about their experiences and we explore their stories. And and that was very transformative. I mean, no student came because they thought they wanted to act in the theatre, not at all, but actually they ended up performing and it created a sense of belonging and it created a sense of community. And, you know, people were sharing sort of deeper experiences of their lives together. And like with all friendship, when you do that with people, you tend to tend to make friends. So... That was the context. City of Melbourne had um, asked me to come and work with students because I've worked in theatre for 30 years with communities. That went extremely well. And so the film has elements of that theatre performance. It touches on that. But the film itself, Forget the Stereotypes at the Immigration Museum, is um, taking four of those students and focused more on on each of those four students, and it weaves their some aspects of their stories together into the into a film for the Immigration Museum. Obviously, to reflect that um, the waves of migration in Australia, one cannot ignore the presence of international students and what they mean to Australia. Mm. I see. And were these uh, international students uh, here for a long time? Were they just students that just came in or? Uh, Combination, combination thereof. I mean, now they've been here for a while, each of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I I knew each of their stories quite deeply. And then we asked more questions and it was translated into film. So myself with Irene Meta, the filmmaker, we have a, a company called Stories Connection, which was founded upon this project, actually, the original theatre production, because there's such a need of working with international students and their stories and representing international students and their voice. As as you would know, probably as an international student, many, many students have, can be compelled to always look like they're smiling and saying, hello, how are you, trying to get the English right, trying to understand, supposed to always be in a good mood, but it actually isn't looking behind the picture, you know, there, there's so much complexity and so much potentiality in these young, bright minds coming to Australia to to truly and not tokenistically uh, explore what diversity really means. Yeah, true. And um, were these were all these students? Uh, also part of performing arts or were they just normal? Oh, not at all. Not at all. Everybody would have run away (laughs) if I said, come and perform your story. No, it's, it's a pro, it's about creating a space where students come and, you know, I don't forget it. I can't even remember the original promotion of the idea. And then people came and they actually had fun, even if it was a bit challenging. And then they told their friends to come and then more people came. And then we ended that built over a period of like six months in the origins of making the theatre performance, which was called She'll Be Right. And, um, and then we had full audiences and international students crying and laughing and saying, that's me. It's like the first time I've seen myself really reflected since I've been in this country because it's the voice of international students. And then again, coming back to forget the stereotypes, it goes, it is now a permanent exhibition in the international, in, in the immigration museum. And it's capturing the voice of international students, an aspect of it for students, one Vietnamese, one from Colombia, uh, one from India, and one from China. And each of them have different 
different angles in their experiences. Obviously, the experience of so many part-time jobs, working so hard and not realising that that might be part of the reality. Uh, another one is about a, a, a young woman's the cultural expectations of marriage and yet her sexual identity, being able to be, feel free to explore that while being in Australia and then actually having the courage to come out to her parents. Another one is about a young man from India who the pressure in India to achieve, to get into the highest universities, the scores, and then coming to Australia. So it, it's sort of expressing, but do I belong in this community? Like seeking a new identity and then questioning where do I belong now? And um, uh, the Vietnamese, for example, particularly focusing on the experience of speaking English. And uh, who am I if I don't get my English perfect? And expecting, I don't know, this, that's why I forget the stereotypes because the stereotype, as Karen from Colombia says, when she had, I expected to come here, kangaroos, beaches, blonde hair, blue-eyed people, and I go to university. That's not the experience. Mm-hmm. And there's many yeah, people from many cultures And that's what he was referencing as well in terms of his English. And I suppose it's very much about how do we really open our minds and meet the other person from a different culture being in Australia. Mm. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it it really, it it seems like, oh, we, we expect some things that we see online about Melbourne or Australia when we come, uh, before we come. And then when we actually arrive there, then things are very different and there's a lot of things that comes that opens up our minds about the culture, the language and how people how people perceive us and what we do. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and you're right. And also a, a changing perception of self. I mean travel beckons beckons adventure. And that adventure I think actually becomes the difference between the dream and the idea of what an international student thinks coming to Australia is compared to the reality. And the reality isn't just all excitement and fun. Of course, there's excitement and fun, but international students cross through some tough stuff. And it's a big growing up experience. It's a huge growing up experience and contribute. International students contribute so much to this country. That's why it's so important that there is an exhibition in the Immigration Museum that captures that narrative. Because they contribute to our universities. They contribute to the economy of buying food in accommodation. But it's not only, I mean, I understand international students in this country is really based on a business model, ultimately. However, the reality of society, of people living together, cohabiting together, I mean, and the experience of wonderfully generally young not all international students are young but generally young people from all around the globe being in our cities is it just makes life so much more interesting they Um, contribute to our society Mm. yep Mm -hmm. so is that what made you think of wanting to take on this project because of you want to um, because it's obviously not something a lot of people can relate to Uh, is that one of the reasons why you want to take on this project Well, I think that's interesting. Yes, of course, not everybody's an international student, but, you know, just look what happened during COVID. 
the universities really were in quite a bit of trouble without the presence of so many international students here. So really, international students have become very much part of our fabric. I mean, Australia is built on immigration. It's at the Immigration Museum. And I think most deeply, most deeply as human beings, if we we want to have to evolve, to have a more peaceful world, we have to understand each other. So forget the stereotypes is such an important statement. Let's just relax and open up and find out who who we are. When I say we, it's relational, me in relation to you. I have my experience, you have yours. But it's really we put it we don't want to put each other in boxes. It's boring apart from anything else. It's it's sort of like being more open to discover. So I think forget the stereotypes is about, as a fantastic line that Karen says, the cultural borders, they don't exist, they're in our mind. So it's actually sort of alludes to the possibility to go beyond those borders and to reach out and learn something from each other. And and, and that's that's fantastic and surely universities represent a space of learning yep and well, well, well these four students i think i remember there was about four international students yes there's four in this about. in this uh, film that's right and how was it the challenge with them in terms of the the language because i know because i know they're from four different countries and obviously you mentioned about them having to speak the english language were they fluent in that or was it Oh, no. And I absolutely, in performance and in theatre and expression, they're never going to speak like a native English speaker. So even even thinking that you should, I think, is a problem. I mean, I think in, in, in communication, communication as human beings is, is a more of an emotional language, more body language, and everybody has a different type of English, of course, to keep studying and because people are doing business, studying in English, of course one has to develop one's English. But the self-consciousness that comes with speaking in English and thinking, oh, how do I sound, probably sound stupid, is is the thing, the very thing I think the work I try to do um, is to work against that because it's really about the richness of the person and and that's their English, so let's just get on with it. That's their English. And it's like how do you um, also negate that internal judgment of oh, I better not speak, I feel shy because I'll get something wrong. And already then the journey is stopped a bit. You've pulled back from the journey of, of course, we make mistakes, we're humans. You have to. That's how we learn. So it doesn't matter. Forget the stereotype of what... Speaking English perfect is all about. <laughs> yes, yeah, the whole thing about forget the stereotype. It's not just about the language. It's about the, I mean, not just about the looks and the culture and everything. It's also about the the language. And I think, yeah, that, that's that's so important to keep reminding, forget the stereotype. Forget well, it, the stereotype. it is because I think the tension, the internalised tension from students to sort of try and be right, of course, they're coming to this, if I came to your country, I'd try to understand what I need to do and I try to understand the culture but there has to be a certain point where um, we're meeting each other and discovering something and and again I repeat Australia is built on immigration the, the people of this nation are Aboriginal they're the Indigenous people are the the people of this land everybody else after that has traveled in 
has migrated here. So having international students in the Immigration Museum is is highly significant and good on the Immigration Museum for picking up on the project and wanting to put it on in there. We actually did perform the performance at the Immigration Museum and that's how the relationship started. And they saw the value in the storytelling. Hmm. Mm, I see. And how, how long did it take to make this film? Was it was it a, a very, very long process? Uh, no, I mean... Uh, yes, because we did it all through COVID. Hence, a lot of the, a lot of the street shots are rather quite empty. <laughs> Some of the film shots because we had to, you know, work between lockdowns to get the filming done, and it didn't happen straight after the theatre show. So the people who were in the film uh, had gone on and done other, thing, other things in their lives. Mm. Yeah, and a big, and as maybe because during COVID, also there were a lot of restrictions on like. Uh, when when you could bring this film out was uh oh when, yes when... the launching of it because otherwise yes. nobody would see it because no one could go to the immigration museum because of the lockdowns so yes there was there were huge delays namely because of lockdowns and covid yeah to make the film but the again a lot of the footage in the film i mean some of the footage in the film is shots taken of the actual performance where the people in were in the performance, but it's not all that the film is about. You know, it's a, it's film. It's another version of their stories. So, um, and they're reflecting on who they are and the meaning of traveling and being away from their home countries because there's often that conflict that occurs. I think always in migration, but you you dream of other worlds, you dream of another life, you're trying to build your career and then you make new friends and you make a new place in another country. You, maybe you build a belonging there and then you go home, you've changed, but maybe the people at home haven't changed. There's, you know, there's a, there's a lot at stake in movement, a lot. And I think the more we can talk about it and unpack it, then the more we can understand together together to make a, a, a healthier society mm. mm-hmm. yep and with the when the stories of the students uh could they uh was it was there an opportunity for them to be really transparent or were they scared to let that truth and that honesty and what they felt in the experience come out oh no you see that that happened through the theater work in the th- that work that I originally did when I ran many, many workshops with international students, got students sharing their lives and performing in front of each other. So the four people in the film have been through that process. They weren't cold to the film. They'd already shared their, they'd performed their own story on the stage. So I had a relationship with each of them. I know them well, they know me. And so really, uh, then translating that on, on into film wasn't so hard. And Irene, who who makes the film, she too made a documentary of um, active translation, which was the project before. There's a documentary of that too, floating around on the web, called Active Translation. And that that is, you'll see the people who are in the forget the stereotypes in that film as well in that documentary. Mm. I see. So it, both of those kind of relate to each other. Yeah, so it is about relationship. It's not sort of going in and doing some sort of cold interview and sort of interviewing um, students off the cuff about being an international student and their experience. I was already quite aware. And obviously, 
stories are huge and we had to get it down for students into a 14-minute film it is. It's constructed to give that experience and I think it, you know, it's working really well. The feedback of it being in the Immigration Museum is that, you know, people are still, you know, are very attracted to it and interested in it. And it's, I just think it's, it's a fantastic achievement that it exists. It actually truly acknowledges that international students have become integral to the history of Australia and immigration. So I think that's what our listeners can take in mind to understand that these are really true international students. It doesn't matter about their identity of what they are in that country, but it's as in like what visa they hold in that country, in Melbourne, but in Victoria, but it's just more of like their story, the, the person themselves. It is oh, very much the story themselves. It was open to anybody could come in. It's a, you know, when we first started the project, it's not based on a process of audition or notion of talent. But of course it is, it becomes collectively representative of a voice for international students, which means what does it mean? It's like a temporary resident almost, somebody who comes in, lives one, two, three, four, five, six years of their life as a student in, in Australia and then stays or goes. Mm-hmm, that's true. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the thing for my case, um, it's going to be, yeah, stay and go because, like, I'm also going to my final year of university. Well, that's right. And, you know, and, and, and there isn't a stereotype. There is not a stereotype of an international student because everybody, even the motivation to travel, to come to this country in the beginning is as as diverse as as there are students you know there's many reasons but i won't open up that pandora's box of the many reasons why students might come to australia you know uh but there's huge narratives huge narratives and um reflective of a world when we have young people traveling wanting to be somewhere else and then we've got to get on with a society that also acknowledges their presence here and and mm-hmm. how, and how do you belong in a place when you don't belong forever it's a it's a good metaphor for all of us we never know how long <laughs> how long we have so it's very good to practice ourselves with each other you know practice being in the moment i suppose mm. definitely uh, all right so um Catherine, uh, one final question so at the end of the day, what do you hope people can get out from this film? What what What's the one thing you want people to know? The one thing I want people to know is to forget the stereotypes. <laughs> uh, again and again, yes, definitely. Uh, really, really, I think that's the main thing. Open up to diversity. We never know somebody's story. And just find out who somebody is. Be curious to know the other don't judge you don't know we just don't know that's what i hope and i hope that there's more respect and understanding for international students in this space more understanding also you know the um what they bring to this country what they give all right i hope people do actually go and watch this exhibition and um yeah, we also don't want to give too much away of the film because then people no, will go and see it. That's right. I hope exactly. I didn't. Did I? Oops. <laughs> oh, no, definitely. All right. So uh, thank you so much, Catherine. My pleasure, Grace. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, I hope audiences do come and see it. It's well worth it.
That was artistic director Catherine Simmons of Akin Connection, speaking on the creative process of Forget the Stereotype and what the message is about. If you'd like to watch the film, head down to Immigration Museum, 400 Flinders Street. It shows daily from 10am to 5pm. If you're a student yourself, you get free entry. The film will be there permanently, so go watch it. Now we're passing back to Claudia and Sonera. What an interesting piece. Definitely want to go and see that one at the Immigration Museum. We're going to hop to a couple of songs now. Um, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to bring our story on Alice Springs to you this morning. We'll be bringing that to you next week. But what we do have is a couple of songs that are by Alice Springs songwriters and produced in Alice Springs. If you haven't heard of Karma Music, it's an organisation owned and operated by Indigenous Australians and it's located in Alice Springs. At Karma, they've been recording, supporting and promoting Indigenous Australian music for more than 40 years. And they also work with the performers at a community level to train and develop the talents of the artists. So we're going to play a couple of tracks now. Um, the first track we're going to play is called Colours by Jessica Wishart. And then we're going to hear a track by a young desert reggae group, the Eastern Arante Band. Uh, that one's called Telephone. But first up, here is Colours. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast, 3CR. It's our subscriber day, so uh, while you're listening, uh, it's a good time to think about all the, the good things that you like about 3CR Breakfast.
is black and white We gotta make it all right In between all the shades of gray And all the stories to embrace All the colors of the rainbow Make you beautiful
And that was Telephone by the Eastern Arante Band. And before that, we heard Colours by Jessica Wishart. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Uh, I'm Claudia. I'm in the studio here with Sonera. And uh, when we come back, we're going to be sharing some uh, talks that were given at a forum last year about the discharge of radioactive waste from the Fukushima nuclear plant in northern Japan. But first, uh, we have some subscriber announcements to share with you. CCR needs members to survive. By becoming a subscriber, you're helping us to remain fiercely independent and free of commercials and corporate influence. Are you a paid-up subscriber? It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Great value for 24-7 community-owned and community-controlled media. Please become a subscriber member today. Call the station on 03-9419-8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare and spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media is a warfare against our people and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. So lots of good reasons to pick up the phone or hop online today to renew your subscription if you're already a 3CR subscriber and if you're not to think about what you enjoy listening to what we bring you that you don't hear in the mainstream news and the special voices that we're able to access through our huge network of grassroots activist organizations both locally and around the world so speaking of activist organisations, in Australia, consumers and environmental groups might be worried about the stockpiling of soft plastics that are destined for the dump. But in Japan and the Pacific, there's a much larger and potentially dangerous stockpile awaiting the tip. For the past 12 years, 
25,000 tonnes of radioactive waste generated by the Fukushima nuclear tragedy have remained disposed of. In April 2021, Japan announced its plan for discharge of the waste with more than 1.2 million tonnes to be mixed with seawater and discharged via a sub-seabed pipeline into the Pacific Ocean. According to Greenpeace, the discharges are scheduled to take place over 30 years, commencing in just a few months. But they are most certainly going to last much longer. Environmental groups, fishery organisations and neighbouring countries, including Pacific Islands, are among those condemning the disposal plan and calling for further risk analysis. We're going to bring you some of the conversations that were had as part of a panel discussion called Don't Contaminate the Oceans with Radioactivity, which was an international online forum taking place at the end of last year. The forum was organised by the Citizens' Conference to Condemn Further Pollution of the Ocean, or Kore Umi, and supported by Friends of the Earth and others. First, we're going to hear from Chio Oda, a member of the Fukushima Civil Environmental Protection Organisation. She spoke about the impact of the Fukushima accident on the local community and the efforts of TEPCO and the Japanese government to suppress the voices of activists. And just a note that the voice we're going to hear on this recording is the voice of an interpreter. I live within 50 kilometres of the nuclear power plant, so this is a place, of course, which had delicious fish and seafood that we were always treasuring and enjoying in our lives. However, after the Fukushima nuclear power plant disaster, the fishers, their suffering has been immense, the fishing industry and all of the fishermen. And of course, the rest of the local community as well is still continuing to suffer even today in many ways. Now, looking at this plan to release the contaminated water into the ocean feels to us almost like another nuclear disaster happening. This is something very serious. And the fact that it is reaching people around the world, and yet the Japanese government and TEPCO is trying to prevent people from hearing these kind of voices, trying to make sure that this does not receive the attention that it does require and deserve. This is a very serious issue. And we don't know how long it will even continue for. So these voices of concerns coming from all around the world, they are trying to put the lid on these voices and make sure that they are not heard as much as needed. However, we cannot stop raising our voices and we must do this together. We will continue to hold these concerns, these worries, and make sure that we do not pass on this situation to the next generation. We cannot allow that to happen we will do all that we can and do it together to pass on a clean ocean and clean world for the next generations and continue to raise our voices and actions together. We hope that you all stay well, stay healthy, and we'll continue to raise our voices and action together. Thank you so much. And that was Chio Oda speaking through an interpreter as part of a panel discussion called Don't Contaminate the Oceans with Radioactivity, organised by the Citizens' Conference to Condemn Further Pollution of the Ocean, Kore Umi. 
The panel featured the voices of people around the Pacific Rim whose livelihoods depend on the ocean and continue to be impacted by radioactive industries. We're now going to hear from Dr Arjun Makijani, President of the Institute for Energy and Environment Research, discussing the feasibility of using bioremediation to treat the waste from Fukushima. This excerpt was an answer to a question from the audience on the use of bioremediation as a solution. There are various examples of bioremediation in the United States. Mostly it is used for chemicals because bacteria and so on will break down the organic toxic chemicals into carbon dioxide, you know, water and so on. It's more difficult with radioactivity and with the volume of water we're talking about. Bioremediation may apply to the tanks that have high levels of strontium. Ideally, I think ALPS treatment should proceed and it should be stored in seismically safe tanks. So you can imagine maybe some part of the water might be bioremediated where you can't get some of the radionuclides out or iodine-129, for example. But overall, I think for the volume of water, you know, bioremediation should be considered, but it could be a complex option. We're now going to hear another excerpt from Dr. Arjean Makijani, where he discusses the dangerous problem with materials used to manufacture fuel rods and advocates for the material to be changed. Once again, this is an answer from a question uh, from the audience. The problem in these reactors that we have, the light water reactors, is the problem of meltdowns. That is the main accident problem. And when there's a meltdown, there's hydrogen, and the hydrogen explodes. That's what happened in Fukushima. It also happened at Three Mile Island. There was a hydrogen fire or explosion, but it did not damage the containment unlike Fukushima, but there was hydrogen and there was a hydrogen fire or explosion. This problem arises from the material from which the fuel rods are made when there's a loss of coolant. There's zircoloy material. It reacts with steam. This problem has been known since 1978, and it was called to attention by the man who designed those fuel rods, Mr. Gulbranson. After Three Mile Island, it should have been clear that he was right, that maybe we should research another material. Researching a material for fuel rods very complicated. After Fukushima, the United States Nuclear Regulatory Commission wrote a safety report. What should we do? You know, make the batteries higher, have more fuel oil on site, whatever. It was a good report. But they did not consider this problem. Should we make fuel rods out of another material so we won't have hydrogen and we won't have explosions. Since there was not this in the report, I raised it. I said, why did you not consider this issue? You know it is an issue. It is the source of these uh, meltdown problems and explosions. And they were very reluctant to answer. They avoided the question, but I insisted. And they said, well, it's the same problem with all reactors, so we didn't consider it. I would have thought that if it is the same problem with all reactors, we should pay more attention to it, not less, because it is the main problem with meltdowns. So there you have an example. I would say that the IAEA, as an agency that makes its 
authority known on safety, and, and that's a word that was used by the Director General in his presentation to the Pacific Islands Forum, that we are the scientific authority, basically. Uh, and so they are. This is a question that they should have insisted on a long time ago. They should have done in France, in Japan. Every nuclear regulation authority should have raised this question, but none have done so. If we wanted nuclear power and we think it's important for climate or whatever, there should have been an alternative material for fuel rods by now. So going forward, we won't have meltdowns. But it's a hard problem. It's not an impossible problem. I know this because I have researched it. But it may be a costly problem. So it is not being done. I'm Tash Sultana, and you are listening to 3CR. Please subscribe. Do yourselves a massive favour. Thank you very much. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. I'm Claudia, and I've got Sunera here with me in the studio on our subscriber drive morning. We've been listening to the voices of people around the Pacific Rim whose livelihoods depend on the ocean and continue to be impacted by radioactive industries. These voices were part of a panel discussion called Don't Contaminate the Oceans with Radioactivity, organised by the Citizens' Conference to Condemn Further Pollution of the Ocean late last year. Here's Dr Arjun Markijani again. Tritium is very radioactive. There's a very small amount of tritium in terms of mass in this water, but it contaminates water intensely because it's extremely radioactive. So basically like ordinary water, and water is used that's made radioactive intensely by the tritium in it. But the bulk of it is just ordinary water. So water is used to make concrete. Ideally, you would build... uh, a cement-making, concrete-mixing plant right there at Fukushima. I looked at how much concrete Japan makes. It's about Japan uses about 40 million tons of cement a year. So this water could be used in a small fraction of the concrete, like for the girders under bridges or even making waste containers, various applications that are not buildings like where people would live. And Only a small amount of concrete that Japan makes would be involved. And instead of 40, 50, 60, 70 years, it could be done in a few years. The tanks could be emptied, and then the water that is being generated could be similarly treated. There is no ideal solution. So I'm not saying this is a perfect solution or that there's no harm or zero risk. But what I am saying is that it's an option that, A, prevents contamination of the oceans, that A is much more likely to prevent intergenerational harm, that is likely to keep essentially all the radiation away from people and also from other organisms like the fish and shellfish. I think the most important thing is the ocean dumping plan, in my own personal scientific opinion, as somebody who has studied waste problems for 40 years, of all the options, this is the worst. Ocean dumping is the worst by far. 
Now they can say the doses are small, but that doesn't actually matter in the sense that you have an obligation to minimize the damage and especially an obligation to not use the ocean as a dumping ground. Bioremediation, you know, certain plants, fungi will concentrate radioactivity, take it up. But then you have the problem of what are you going to do with all of that? You have to treat it basically as solid waste. It is being done in various places in the United States. So that may be a possibility. But if you ask me my personal opinion, I think treating the water and storing it in safe tanks and then using it in concrete among all the options that I have seen may be the least damaging. We didn't examine it in great technical detail. So I think if there were a serious effort in three months, you could come up with an answer as to whether this is the best way to proceed. But TEPCO has absolutely refused to consider it. The NDA has refused to ask them. The IAEA has said, basically said, we're not going to worry about the problems now. And so essentially endorse the dumping without saying we are endorsing the dumping. Because if you say construction should go ahead and we don't care what's in the tanks today, they didn't say it in those words, but that's my surmise that we'll see, we'll measure the water before it is discharged. But then if it's not satisfactory, what are you going to do at that stage? And there's no answer to that question. If you have to go through Alps 100 times, are you going to do that? The indications are from them that, yeah, they would do it. The cost and time implications, we don't know. So I think it's not a sensible way to proceed, certainly not responsible for future generations and for the common heritage of humanity in the oceans, not only humanity, but you know, more and more we realize that we are just one more living being among so many and that we are interconnected. This is the way to affect the most possible living beings that you could, dumping it in the ocean. There is no ideal plan. Once the accident has happened, in a way, once you have created the nuclear power plant and all the waste, you know, there's no ideal solution, but there are solutions that are much, much less damaging. And that was Dr. Arjun Makijani speaking at the Don't Contaminate the Oceans with Radioactivity conference that was held last year. We're going to play the final segment from this series. Um, so here is Dr. Arjun Makijani again. Well, the IAEA has a conflict of interest, the same way the Atomic Energy Commission had in the United States. So on the weapons side, it is clear they have a mandate for inspections and so on. They're not promoting weapons production. On the nuclear power side, they have a dual mandate. They are promoting nuclear power on the one hand, and then on the other hand, they're supposed to provide advice on safety and environment and radiation discharges and so on. This is a conflict that you know, would lead generally to the minimization of problems. But even given that, I was shocked that the IAEA was not concerned to know what is in the tanks today and how that would affect the treatment and was basically willing to say, okay, go ahead and start the construction and then we'll see later. Initially, when the experts panel was formed, there seemed to be some readiness on the part of the IAEA to talk to the expert panel directly. 
because we are, after all, scientifically appointed by the governments of the Pacific region, the 18 governments that are members of the Pacific Islands Forum. And so we are, in a way, official scientists for that forum. They may or may not accept our advice, but we give them the advice according to our best scientific judgment. And we have been able to arrive at a common scientific judgment. And initially, I did not know whether we could because so many different from so many different fields. But my current understanding is that IAE is actually refusing to talk to us. They said they, they treat us as any other scientists on the street, which is a very shocking thing, especially given our findings. Our findings should be shocking, even if somebody is not concerned and thinks the doses are going to be low and dumping may not be too bad. Just the scientific problems and the way which it is being approached should be shocking for an institution, not only TEPCO, not only Japan's foreign ministry, but also your nuclear regulation authority. Regulation authorities are supposed to be more serious, in my opinion. And I think knowing what they know, having seen our memo, refusing to engage with us in more detail, You take that tellurium-127 thing, so simple. You should have no tellurium-127, but you claim that it was there and you are measuring it. And when we raise the question, you move around and say, not 2019, maybe 2014, December 2011. And then in the end, none of those were satisfactory answers and no answer was forthcoming. As a scientist, that's very shocking. Even if the plan were perfect, It's shocking in itself because it makes me say, how can I trust the measurements if they are not willing to address this kind of problem that is so blatant in the measurements? How do I know that any of the measurements are right? And currently, as me personally, not talking for the expert panel, currently, as I sit here, I can't say that I have confidence in TEPCO's capacity to make good measurements. And besides not statistically representative, and we said so, and they said it doesn't matter. So refusal to talk to the expert panel by the IAEA, I think, is a big problem. The Japanese government has talked to us, TEPCO has talked to us, but in the same way as you mentioned earlier, where they say, we want your understanding, which basically means we want your agreement. And when we did not agree, and that's where we are, we did not agree. And that was Dr. Arjun Makijani, one of three main speakers at the Citizens Conference to Condemn Further Pollution of the Ocean. That was held late last year. Uh, we also heard earlier from Chio Oda, a member of the Fukushima Civil Environmental Protection Organization and a Fukushima resident. You can watch the full event uh, via the uh, video link, which we will put details of on our show notes together with some other reading materials. Excuse me. And a big thank you to our fellow 3CR volunteer, Clive, who put this audio together uh, and enabled us to capture these unique perspectives and voices and share them with you. Sonara, would you agree that's an example of the sort of uh, work that we do here and the way in which we can present these critical issues with uh, perspectives that really come from the people that are affected 
by these matters and the people that are doing the action, the hard work to bring governments to account. Definitely. I think, um, you know, uh, radios like uh, community radios like 3CR are really bringing that firsthand perspective and making it a priority um, instead of, you know, um, other um, areas uh, like in mainstream media, how there's parachute journalism and like foreign correspondents um, reporting uh, on issues where, you know, they've had no, they might have not had, um, they might have not experienced. So it, I think it's very important that we support these voices and that we um, truly gain these perspectives. And, you know, it, to do that, I think we need um, subscribers to um, have our radio, have our community radio functioning and um, standing and providing all these voices to you. So please subscribe. If you want to subscribe, you can um, you can go to our website on www.3cr.org.au slash subscribe. And if um, going online is not your cup of tea, then you can call the station on 0394198377 and then press 1 and then you can subscribe over the phone. So it would be great if you could support our um, these people's voices. And the other thing to note about becoming a subscriber is that you are then part of the 3CR community in an additional way to being a listener. Um, and this gives you certain rights. It's a very democratic organisation and subscribers have the right to have a voice at the table at 3CR. So as part of the decision-making that goes on with the committees and determining the direction of the station, and the the focuses, the way we apply our resources, whether it be for International Women's Day or Invasion Day uh, or Pride. Yeah, so it's not just about um, supporting us financially to actually keep the bricks and mortar in place. It's also about having the opportunity to contribute yourself to the trajectory of what we're doing, which is a fairly unique uh, opportunity, I would say, yeah. And if you are planning to subscribe today, please make sure you say that you're a Wednesday breakfast listener um, because we'd like to know who is listening and who's supporting us. We appreciate all our listeners and we hope that you're enjoying what we, we bring you. We're going to go to a song now. What have we got next uh, up? We've got uh, Don't Explain by Kate Biger. And when we come back, we'll be talking with Mick Cummins, winner of the Victorian Premier's Literature Prize for the Best Unpublished Manuscript. Say you remain. 
tremendous poetry riddle with a pot And Nabokov wrote on index cards and a lectern in his socks He said, John of the Cross, he did a his best of it present in a box And Johnny Fulmer's was half alive when he wrote Chinese His carbuncles while riding death capital. And Gogan, he put it off, man, and he went all tropical. And Philip Larkin, he stuck it out in a library in her. And Dylan Thomas, he died drunk in St. Vincent's Hospital. Get on your feet, brother, and up below it. And if you got a field that don't yield, go get up now and uh, hoe it. And if it's you, you look at me, and deep in our hearts, they will know it. That you want much of the news, but then I want much of it. And you're back listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, 15th of February 2023. Now, last week we spoke to the winner of the Victorian Premier's Literature Prize for 2023, Jessica Owl, whose book Cold Enough for Snow took out uh, the Best Fiction Prize and over the overall uh, prize for literature. We're delighted this week to speak with the prize winner for the category of Best Unpublished Manuscript, 
So that's a, a manuscript that's not yet in the bookstores, um, which automatically spikes my interest. Mick Cummins lives in Melbourne, where he's now writing full-time after many years juggling writing with his part-time role as a social worker. He has written two unproduced feature film scripts developed with the assistance of Screen Australia and a number of documentaries for the ABC. He's also a published playwright and One Divine Night, the winner of this prize, is his first novel. We're very excited to welcome Mick to 3CR Breakfast this morning. Good morning, Mick. Hi, how are you going? Very well, thank you. Congratulations on winning this award. How did you respond when you heard that news? Uh, I was speechless, actually. No, it was very exciting, yes. Um, I wasn't expecting it. And then you set out to write a novel, like I did, and, um, you know, I wasn't really thinking about, even thinking about publication. I just wanted to get to the end, basically. Yeah, having written uh, some stuff myself, uh, I know that feeling. <laughs> well, you got to the end. I believe that you uh, submitted your piece uh, the day before the deadline. Yes, I did. My son's partner, um, I think she texted me to tell me what was, you know, that it was there and, you know, perhaps I should do it. So I had a quick look and, um, yes, I put it in and this is what happened. <laughs> Well, that just goes to prove that uh, it's worth uh, going for these things. Yes, no, look, a a friend of mine who's uh, written several books encouraged me to, you know, enter into various, you know, literature prizes and, you know, unpublished manuscript prizes. But this is the first one, actually, so, um, yeah. You're off to a good start. (laughs) So tell us about... The novel, um, I'm not sure how much you want to reveal given it's unpublished and you might want to uh-huh. wait for a later date to reveal all. But, um, uh-huh. yeah, what can you tell us? Uh, look, it's, um, oh, it's actually based on a, uh, a, an article I read in the Sunday Age about, I don't know, it must be more than a decade ago, about um, uh, the story about this young man and I, the story hasn't, you know, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. And I, I wrote a um, film screen treatment for it um, well, several years ago and it didn't go anywhere. Um, and then my partner decided, or she said to me one day, well, why don't you write a novel? So I sat down to start. It's a story about a, a young man who was uh, abused by his grandfather when he was eight years old and... He, you know, through the, the trauma of all of that, he becomes addicted to heroin and estranged from his family. And the, the novel is about his journey uh, to reclaim his life, to get his life back again, basically, without the pain that he's been carrying around for 10 years. Mm. Fairly uh, heavy stuff. <laughs> yes, it is. But, yeah, look, it was, um, yeah, it's heavy, it's heavy, but it's a story that I, I think needs to be told. Um, Absolutely. So how did you yeah. go about approaching it and 
thinking about the best way to tell this story? Look, I guess um, I mean through my work as a social worker, particularly working in um, places like Southport Community Housing Group um, and Launch Housing as a part-time casual worker, I'd experienced you know a lot of this young man's um, sort of daily activities. So I started with him at a, a crisis centre somewhere where I felt comfortable, you know, telling this story. And it rolled on from there, really. I had a bit of a... But I did have a plan. I knew how it was going to end. But um, I guess, you know, in the writing process, all these things came up that dredged up from, you know, my work and my experience with characters like him. So it, it flowed... Um, the narrative flow that day was just getting the right words, you know, into place and to make it entertaining. I guess that's the thing that you need to do is not to ask the reader or expect the reader to to, to keep reading. So uh, it needs it needs to needs to be engaging, and so that was the task. And um, it seems to have worked so far. So, what are the devices that you use to? to keep the reader engaged when you are dealing with such a uh, difficult uh, subject matter and someone's trauma? Um, look, I, I think from my experiences as writing drama, it's about, you know, having, giving that sense of, of all the time what, what's going to happen next. You know, the, the readers wanting to, one of the readers to be asking themselves what, what's going to happen next. And, you know, and I think to, to, to create some empathy for the, for the character mm-hmm. of Aaron, who's the main character. Um, yeah, so, yeah for, for, for people to like him, even though he's doing things that you think he shouldn't be doing, we definitely shouldn't be doing. But there is some empathy and understanding about why he's doing it. This is a really important part of, I suspect, why your work caught the uh, judge's eye because there's often a gap in what we do read um, about that real experience that people have in difficult situations like the one you're writing about. Mm, you know, yeah, I think that's true. I look, I guess, you know, uh, having worked in that, Milieu for quite a long time. I, you do come to understand why people are in that position, mm. and you do have empathy, and you you do want something to happen that's going to change their lives. So I guess that was a driving point mm. for me. Um, you know, some so many of these young people have got. I found anyway lots of talent that's wasted. That's not uh, they're not given the opportunity to develop it. And I noticed that time and time again, really through my work. You know, people playing guitar at the community centre and playing it brilliantly, or singing, or you know, painting, doing lots of things creatively, but never ever getting the opportunity to express it, uh, to find an audience for that. Um, Work. Yeah, it's very sad when uh, survival and 
working through continuous problems uh, overtakes your whole life basically and doesn't leave you spiritually or functionally with the opportunity to explore yourself or your your talents. No, that's very true. And, you know, often it's, it's, you know, associated traumas and, you know, addictions, alcohol, you know, heroin, all sorts of drugs and all of those things that are being used for self-medication and to quell the, the pain and the and the daily drudgery of life, really, living in poverty. Mm. Uh, you know, and, I, and for many people without without anywhere to live, it makes the whole thing even so much more difficult. Would you like to read us a short piece? an extract from the manuscript to give us a taste for the style that you've employed here. And Yeah, yeah. I'd be happy to do that. Um, yes, I did. We, we talked about a longer piece, but I picked a slightly shorter piece. I thought it would be easier for me. <laughs> no worries. Um, that's okay, yeah? Absolutely. Okay. The car vibrates over the cattle grid. And Aaron can see the house softly lit at the end of the tree-lined gravel driveway. He swallows the last of the whiskey as they enter the faux chateau courtyard and drive around the fountain at its centre. The man parks the car in front of the house and turns off the motor and the headlights. He doesn't move and Aaron can hear him breathing slowly and deliberately. He glances across to see that his eyes are closed. Fuck, what's he doing? Then he hears him. You've had a long day at school, my boy. All those sports you play, you must be very sweaty. Can we go in? Aaron asked softly with his hand poised to open the door. Of course. You have a nice warm shower to freshen up while I heat up our dinner. Sausages and chips, how does that sound? Play the game, Aaron. Just play the game and get it over with. Sounds good. He hears the click of the central door lock and then he is standing on the gravel with the smell of blood and bone rising from the flower bed under the bay window. That's it. Fantastic. Thank you. It, um, yeah, had me on the edge of my seat, sort of just <laughs> feeling feeling what uh, that scene brought. I wanted to ask you a question, um, which I hope isn't an ageist question, but yeah. I recently was at an event where last year's winner of the Australian Vogel uh, Award was uh-huh. speaking. And as listeners uh, are no doubt aware, the, the Vogel Award is also an award for an unpublished manuscript, but it is a young person's award, so you have to be under 35. Yeah, so, that. <laughs> knowing that um, I was going to be speaking to you and then mm-hmm. noticing that uh, you're older uh, than that and you've got a, a belt of um, success 
uh, in other genres. Um, mm-hmm. It made me sort of think about two things. Uh, firstly, how do you feel about prizes that target younger people and aren't available to older writers? That's the first part of the question. So I'll um, leave you with that one yeah. first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I, you know, I looked at that and I thought, oh, okay, that's not me. Um, but I understand why. It's, um, I guess, you know, getting younger people a, bit, a, a, a leg up, really, you know, an interest into, the, into a career. And, um, yeah, look, I don't feel any, any negativity towards it. I guess it's, um, you know, also that there's a balance, that there are other um, opportunities for people that are older, like myself. Um, so it balances out. And, um, yeah, look, I, I have no qualms about it. Do you think this was a story you could have written at an earlier age? Or do you uh, think that no. being older was enabled you to work um, with this material in the way that you have? Yeah, no, I think that's true for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, I, I started off writing similar short stories, actually, when I was quite young. And I really didn't have the... I don't, you know, I didn't have the craft. And and most of, you know, most of writing really is about craft and developing your craft. And I, I've been able to do that through my screenwriting and theatre writing and, you know, documentary writing. It's all about story and how to tell a story. And I think I've learned a lot. And also through my work, you know, I've... Um, got to know so many of these characters that I was able to write about. Look, I don't know, Claudia, it's a good question. Um, We'll have to wait for it to be published (laughs) and um, and then read it and uh, I'm sure we'll be all telling you, yes, every bit of your experience has paid off in this. (laughs) Yes, well, I think so. Look, you know, yeah. um, I mean, it's a difficult question to answer. The answer would be no, I don't think I could have done it. No, not without a lot of help. So we're about to wrap up, but I just wanted to um, ask you, I know that part of your prize is a two-week writing retreat. Are you planning on working further on this manuscript or are you starting a new work? Uh, That's a good question too. Look, it just depends on on when I go. I haven't yet heard back from um, the people um, at MIT who... um, on that house down at Tremana that um, really lovely um, architecturally designed house. It's McCraith House, I think it's called. So I haven't heard back from there. I just need to fit in exactly uh, when it is I can go and what I'm working on at the time. I mean, I'm talking to publishers now and, of course, with publishers there are there's always an edit to do, so I'm, I'm thinking that that's what I will mm. do. I'll, I'll use the two weeks to work on the edit and satisfy the publisher so we can get it out as as soon as possible. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning um, and best of luck with the the final polish. Oh, thanks, Claudia. Appreciate it. All right. Cheers. That was writer Mick Cummins, winner of the Unpublished Manuscript Award at the recent Victorian Premier's Literature Awards. 
And if you've enjoyed this conversation, um, make sure you tune in next week because we'll be speaking with the Turkish-Australian writer and scholar Edda Ganyadin, who won the prize for non-fiction for her essay collection, Root and Branch. That's all we've got time for today. Thanks for joining us uh, once again. Those numbers are www.3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or 94198377. And please mention Wednesday Brecky. All right. We'll see you guys soon next week uh, with more guests. And in the meantime, um, always uh, remember to subscribe because we're on air because of our subscribers. Thank you so much and see you next week. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.